may be seated. Our sermon today is taken from 1 Kings chapter 8, and today we're going to be reading verses 54 through 66, finishing up the chapter. Now just a note, uh, there are two main parts in this section. There is the benediction that's given by given by uh, Solomon in the beginning, uh, section verses 54 through 61. And then after that, we have uh, verses 66, uh, verses 62 rather, to 66. And what is that? That is actually a record of the great feast that Solomon held immediately after the conclusion of the dedication service, a time of great feasting and joy for Israel. But before we read the word of God, let's seek the face of God. Let's ask for his blessing. God, our Father, as I read your word today, I pray, Lord, that I would become transparent, that your people would see only you and your goodness to them. I pray, Lord, that they would see how Solomon uh, intervened. He interceded for your congregation and as such was a type of Christ. But we know that every mortal man in the Bible falls far short of the standard he set. So while Christ uh, is... Um, sui generis, without equal. We uh, understand, Lord, that there were many types and shadows given in the Old Testament to point men to Christ, to remind them of the great promise that was given even in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Help us as we see Solomon and the temple to see those types and shadows that pointed forward to the coming of the Lord, who epitomized the prophet, the priest, the king, the temple and meeting place where God and man meet and where they are reconciled. Oh Lord, now help us to understand. We know that as we enter into the preaching of the word, we're entering into spiritual warfare. And we know that our great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, will bring their forces onto the field to try to distract us. We pray, Lord, though, that they would be defeated. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. First Kings chapter 8, starting with verse 54. This is the word of the Lord. And so it was when Solomon had finished praying all this prayer and supplication to the Lord that he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. Then he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise which he promised through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine, with which I have made supplications before the Lord, be near the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day may require, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other Let your heart, therefore, be loyal to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as at this day. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord, 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord On the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord. 
For there he offered burnt offerings, grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings. At that time Solomon held a feast, and all Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt, before the Lord our God, seven days and seven more days, 14 days. On the eighth day he sent the people away, and they blessed the king and went to their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done for his servant David and for Israel, his people. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Every service that we have in this particular house of God, this particular church, congregation, ends in the same way. That is, if there's a pastor uh, present, if I or another pastor uh, are officiating Uh, in the service, then it always ends with a certain series of words, what we call a benediction. It comes from the Latin benedictio, uh, from bene meaning well and dictio speaking, good speech, or simply what we would call a blessing. Sometimes I just simply say blessing instead of benediction. Uh, In this section here, we see a transition going uh, on. It's no longer Solomon speaking to God, but it becomes Solomon not just praying to God, but Solomon speaking blessings from God to the people. In a sense, as we read, he was on his knees. He was praying with his hands outstretched, and his hands would have been uh, following the typical model. They would have been stretched out like this, palms upraised as he was praying to the Lord on his knees. But now he turns and he stands And his hands probably would have changed their direction. He is now praying down the blessings of God upon the people. So the direction changes. But in one sense, this is a hybrid prayer, isn't it? Because he is not just praying for the people. He is praying to God on behalf of the people that his blessings would be upon them. Now, in one sense... Solomon is begging the Lord to do these things, to bless his people. In another sense, he is pronouncing that blessing upon his people, which is what we do when we pronounce the blessing upon God's people. We speak confidently. How can we speak confidently? Because God has said in his covenant promises again and again that he will give these blessings to his people. If they draw near to him, he will draw near to them. And he has always kept his promises. Solomon makes that point. Now, why we do this, why we bless the people is we need God's blessings in a fallen world, don't we? We need them in order to go on. We need them simply to get through. The blessing that I use on a regular basis is usually the Aaronic blessing, which was pronounced uh, by the priests on Israel. We read that in Numbers 6.23. There we hear the instruction of the Lord, speak to Aaron. Aaron, of course, was the high priest and his sons, saying, this is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. When I am pronouncing the benediction or when another Presbyterian pastor is pronouncing the benediction, we do not believe that it is we who are blessing the congregation of the Lord. We are speaking God's blessings to you. I'm not at that moment in time, in fact, even praying for you. It is God's blessing that is being pronounced in accord with his desire. 
We see in the New Testament, one of the wonderful things about all the letters of Paul, and I hope you have noticed this as you've been reading Paul's letters, is there's always a blessing to the congregation. He always speaks some words of heavenly comfort, usually near closing. One of the funny things about Paul you'll notice is uh, in the, um, and you can see that he was writing his letters with an amuensis, that is a secretary. He'll obviously be coming to a closing, and then he'll speak a benediction occasionally, and then he'll be like, oh, and I forgot to mention, and then he'll include something else. So it's, uh, sometimes the benediction isn't quite at the end of the letter, but there's always that great word of blessing, that great word of comfort, and it's not something that Paul makes up. It's some blessing that the Lord has promised, some blessing that has been at the heart of Christian teaching for generations, decades, centuries. Here, Solomon offers a benediction for the people. He blesses God for keeping, first, before he does anything else, he blesses God for keeping his promises to Israel, saying, not one of them has failed. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. As we consider this, we need to remember that this was a people who were enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. They had been brought into that land, the land of Goshen, you remember, a land that was uh, was greatly uh, prosperous, a place in which it was very easy to grow things because of the overflow of the Nile Delta on a regular basis. But there also, even in the midst of, uh, of a garden of plenty, they had found terrible bondage because the Lord's desire was to bring them out and then to bring them into a promised land. He had, in due time, raised up a deliverer for them. Moses had brought them out. And then they had spent those 40 years in the wilderness because of their disobedience. But their children, the next generation, were brought into the land under Joshua. The conquest was successful, even though there were great fortified cities. Many nations and the Canaanites did not obviously want them taking over the land. But the Lord had kept his promise to go before them like like a a swarm of hornets driving the people out. And he had indeed done that. He had given them their homeland. Then during the time of the judges, even when they were oppressed because of their apostasy going over other gods, God hadn't left them. He hadn't forsaken them. He had been there. He had been chastening them, yes, when they were disobedient. But he had always relieved them when they had come to him. When they cried out to him, in faith, the Lord had shown them pity. He had raised up judges. And then in due time, he had raised up kings. First Saul, and when Saul failed... He anointed another man, David, a man after his own heart. And now David's son, Solomon, is reigning over a united nation, all 12 tribes living together in the same national area. It's now spread to its greatest extent. They do have a capital city, a fine-walled city, and he has just completed this beautiful temple in Jerusalem. They have peace all around They have nations giving them offerings. They have good relations with everybody. And Solomon remembers, this is not our doing. Neither is it, oh, wow, that's kind of lucky, thanks. But rather, it was God's promises coming to pass. So he begins by saying, God has kept his covenant promises to us. He has blessed us in the greatest sense. We have this calm moment now when I can pronounce this blessing and benediction. And then he says, I need 
Well, he doesn't say it out loud, obviously, but he knows that he needs to pronounce God's blessings upon the people, particularly for the things that they have need of. These are the main blessings that the child of God, even to this day, should desire, should want from God. When we go before the Lord, we have here almost a roadmap of the kind of things that we need. But before I go over the things that he prayed for, let me ask you this question, and I ask you this in all seriousness. What are the things that you would ask for? What is it that you want from God? If God were to appear to you as he appeared to Solomon and said, ask of me what you desire, what are the things that you would ask for? While you're pondering that, I need to tell you that when it comes to what do you want from God, most American Christians, Americans generally, but American Christians are getting it terribly wrong. The, the blessings that they would ask for, that they indicate that they would ask for when they're asked and surveyed, do not match in any sense the blessings that Solomon asks for today. There's strong evidence for that in a book that was published in the early 2000s called Soul Searching the Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers by Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist. Now, this was, as I said, published in the early 2000s. But keep in mind, these kids have grown up since, and there's no evidence whatsoever that their desires or the answers that they gave to the people who were asking questions back then have changed. Christian Smith and his fellow researchers were working at the National Study of Youth and Religion, which was based at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And what they wanted to do is figure out what do American kids, what do American teenagers, what do they believe? And after surveying them extensively, they, they said the religion that most of these professing Christian kids espouse is not actually Christianity. It does not have a relationship to the doctrines taught within the Bible. It is what they called moral and therapeutic deism. Moral, the system of mores and, and goods and evils, and therapeutic, obviously you know what that means, healing. Deism, they believed in a god who was good and would heal them. As described by Smith and his team, moralistic therapeutic deism consists of beliefs like these. One, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. And that was after conducting more than 3,000 interviews with teens drawn from, uh, most of them professing Christian teens drawn from all around the United States. They found that when they discussed theological topics, issues of doctrine and so on, that the vast majority of the teens who were questioned, they simply shrugged their shoulders when asked about these things and said, whatever. They could not articulate anything other than the vague ideals that they set out in verses 1 through 5. So when it came to summing up what they thought they needed from God, their answers tended to be things like, well, I need friends, I need happiness, I need peace, I need the internet, I need prosperity, I need a new cell phone, I need, you know, those kind of things. Really, they said the things that they were asking for were the kind of things that, you know, you get through good government, a nice family, and a good job. You don't actually need, in a materialistic sense, 
God to give these things. And it certainly is a very different, different set of expectations from what Solomon asked for. You remember Solomon was asked, ask what shall I give you by God? And Solomon's answer was not a new cell phone. Solomon's answer was wisdom. And incidentally, wisdom is something you seldom ever get from a cell phone, unfortunately. Unless you call somebody wise, in which case you can sometimes get that. But our answer, uh, that is as American Christians, would tend to be, I want to be happy. I want to be happy. Or I want something that I assume, something or someone that will make me happy in a materialistic sense. C.S. Lewis, though, in his own time, uh, when he wrote uh, his books on Christianity and, and the way it was developing in the 1940s, detected that Christianity was already moving in that direction. He already said in, in what he wrote uh, that it wasn't that we were asking for too much from God or asking for the right things from God. Lewis put it this way. He said, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We are a people who, when we are asked, ask of me half my kingdom. In fact, God says, ask of me the entire kingdom. And we say, I want mud pies. We say, we want little things. We want the things of time. We want sandcastles that are washed away in no time at all. Or we want things that we think will make us happier than they ever have the capacity to make us happy. And if that is all we need in life, then uh, are we really even Christians? Are we? But what are the blessings that Solomon asks for? Well, he sets them out. The first thing that he asks for is God's abiding presence with them in verse 57. Take a look at that. He says, may the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake us. The most important thing Solomon says is that God be active and powerful and present within their lives. You remember when God grew angry with the people of Israel on Mount Sinai, he said to Moses, he says, I'm going to send an angel with you. I'm not going to go with you myself any longer. Before that time, you remember, God had moved during the day as a pillar of cloud to show them where they should go. And then at night as a pillar of fire, it was a visible reminder of his presence with them. When they stopped to encamp, his presence would be visibly present at the tent of meeting. There would be the cloud that would descend upon that. So they knew God was in their midst. And when God was with them, who could stand against them? When he says, I'm going to send an angel, this powerful messenger, instead of me so I don't break out against this people and destroy them for their apostasy, their stubbornness, their stiff-neckedness. Moses says, well, in that case, kill me. Kill us all. It's a, if you don't go with us, it's just not worth it. There is no hope for us if you are not in our midst. What do we need most of all? Moses rightly answered, God, we need you, Lord. And the greatest, the greatest loss that man ever suffered, which occurred in the garden, was separation from God. When we sinned, 
we were no longer able to stand in the presence of a holy God. Adam had walked with God in the coolness of the day. He was cut off from God. That was the greatest loss, to become spiritually orphaned. And that is why we need reconciliation to our Father so very badly. We need Him. We need to be in His presence. Without Him, there is just that awful God-shaped hole in our hearts, isn't there? Augustine was right when he said, O Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. In all of us is that hole that nothing else can fill. The sad thing is, what Christian Smith merely discovered, is that teenagers say, O Lord, give me a bulldozer and a ton of goodies and so on, and I'm going to try to attempt to drive them into the hole, and let's see if they fill them. And then are we surprised that teens are horrifically depressed when they find that none of these things can ever fill that hole, and so they feel empty inside. I knew experimentally that emptiness as a teenager. And I discovered that the only thing that could fill that hole was God himself. And that was when he met with me. So that's the first thing he asked for, God's abiding presence. Then the second thing that he asked for on behalf of Israel and himself is salvation and sanctification. We see that in verse 58, that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, which he commanded our fathers. I'm grateful that we are at the place we are at in the shorter catechism. Uh, Elder Brunson pointed out to us today the, the wonder of effectual calling. He pointed out that dead men can't answer anything until they are given life. Lazarus, come out of the tomb by your own power and I'll grant you life. It's impossible. Neither can we come to Christ without his power, whom the Father calls. They are the ones who answer. And so he asks that our hearts would be inclined to him, that he may incline our hearts to himself. Make us willing. Your people, as the psalmist put it, will be volunteers in the day of your power, O Lord. We would be made willing. We need a will inclined to God. That's the greatest change that can happen. A new heart, a living heart within us. And a heart that desires to do his commandments. A heart that is no longer that awful heart of stone that we're born with, but a heart of flesh. A heart that has God's commandments within them. And for the first time, ever in our existence, a desire to keep them no longer under the awful dominion of Satan and sin, that we would be striving to obey God, not out of slavish obedience, not like the other peoples in the other nations obeyed their fickle gods because they were afraid that at any moment they might be destroyed. So they served with a slavish fear, but rather to fear God, to love him and obey him as their heavenly father, as one who they respected whom they had such awe for, that they obeyed out of, out of love. That's the way that, you know, kids should obey their parents, out of love, out of reverence and esteem for who they are. Sometimes the saddest thing is that the most obedient creature in our household is our dog, never our cat, but the dog. <laughs> I just love you. What are we going to do today? You know, the cat's like, I'm plotting my rebellion, just waiting my time, you know. And so on. I don't need any of you. But you can pet me if you want. That kind of thing. But the dog, the dog sometimes just with that open-hearted silliness loves you. Doesn't always obey perfectly. Does some stupid stuff. I guess it's all of it. 
More to the point, we should have that kind of obedience that a, a loving son has for their father. I want to obey my dad. He's a great guy. I want to follow him. I want to be like him. I want to grow up to be half the man my father is. Or more, perhaps, if God blesses me. That's the kind of love that we should have. And a sanctification where we grow more and more like the God who saved us. More and more like Christ, conformed to his image. The third thing that Solomon asked for is that God would hear and answer their prayers. Solomon says, And may these words of mine, which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near the Lord our God day and night, that he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day may require. Prayer is not something that we do once and that's enough. Solomon understood that. It's not merely the prayers that I've offered up today on this particular day. Just, you know, cast your mind back, God, and remember them once in a while. But rather, every single day as prayers like these ones that I've offered up come to you in this place or are prayed towards the temple. May you hear. Give us this day our daily bread. Every single day we're supposed to be praying to Christ to ask him for those new blessings that we need, the temporal ones. Every day we're supposed to be praying that his name would be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven, that the kingdom would be spreading. Every day we're supposed to be engaging in that very personal way with God. But if we cry out and no one listens, what good is it? Merely mumbling these things over and over and again as incantations that, that have no power whatsoever. What good would that do? But no, Solomon has prayed, Lord, meet with your people. Lord, hear your people for your name's sake because of your covenant promises. And then do what they have need of. When they turn towards you, when they pray, answer their prayers. And then finally, I hope you notice this, he prayed that God's name would be hallowed throughout the earth. That all men would bless the name of the Lord. That all men would worship him. So in verse 60, he says that all the peoples of the earth. One, uh, one pastor commenting on this, he said, I wonder how many people were surprised to hear the nations being mentioned in this great national prayer of Israel as their temple is being dedicated. May all the nations bless and hallow your name, O God. Not just us here in this particular nation, but may all the earth give you the praise and the honor and the glory that you deserve. That all the peoples of the earth may know the Lord is God. There is no other. That's the reason, brothers and sisters, for missions. It's not so that we would go out and, and feed people and clothe them. That, those, are good, those are good things. But the most important thing is that we would spread the name of the Lord far and wide. John Piper was absolutely right when he said missions exist because worship doesn't. In other words, what are we seeking to do to bring people into covenant with God that they might worship him through his son, Jesus Christ? That is the purpose of missions going out. Now, notice the orientation of all of these things. The people of God are blessed, not when he serves them. That's moral and therapeutic deism. God, the giant vending machine in the sky. God, I have a problem. There's a test tomorrow. I haven't studied at all for it. Would you somehow let me pass? And then that kind of thing again and again and again. But rather, Solomon understands the people of God are blessed when they are enabled to serve him. 
when they are truly enabled to glorify and enjoy him forever, not merely when they're just receiving these little boons and blessings. Now, the temple that Solomon was dedicating on that day is a type and a shadow of Christ. It was a place, the place, where God's people might meet with him. No matter where they came from, they could come to the temple and know that they were heard because God dwelt in the midst of his people and by his covenant sacrifices and, and obligations by which he had tied himself to his people, then he would hear them because of what he would do through his son, the great mediator, David's greater son, Jesus Christ. Now, all of these things, these blessings that we need, and we still need these blessings to this very day, all of them, all of these things can be ours, but they can only come to us when we have closed with God through Christ. He is the key. You want the abiding presence of God? Then you must close with Jesus Christ. I am with you. Did he not say that I am with you even to the end of the age? this present evil age, and then we move into the presence of God, don't we, abiding with him forever. How does that happen? Through Christ. He prayed for their salvation and for their sanctification. Sanctify them, our Lord said in his high priestly prayer in John 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. When Peter was told that, that awful truth that he would fail, that he would fall, that he would deny Christ three times. He said, nevertheless, I have prayed for you. And when you are returned, strengthen the brethren. Why is it we persevere? Because Christ is with us. Christ prays for us. Christ prays for our sanctification. And he makes the means available. Do you want to be holy? Then you must go to Christ. There is no holiness outside of it. Do you not need... Do you have need? We all do. When you pray, do you wish to be heard? Then you must go through Christ. And then when you do, he gives us the assurance, most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. When we pray in the name of Christ, it's not a magical incantation. It's a sign of our union with him. We are asking in his name. And we will receive that which we have need of from the Father. And then... Do you want to bring blessings to the rest of the world? And I hope you do. Here in Fayetteville and throughout the world, well then, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, says Jesus Christ. And sends his church out into the world in the Great Commission. All of these things are brought together par excellence in Jesus Christ. But in order to have them, you must close with him. And once we have closed with him, what's the great sign of our having closed with him? Well, we feast just at the end of the dedication of the temple. After the blessings of God are pronounced upon the people, what do they do? They feast. They have this 14-day feast. Now, do we feast as Solomon and the people did? Well, not quite with 120,000 sheep and, you know, 22,000 oxen and so on. Not quite that extravagantly, but we do eat together, do we not? We have a recurring meal on a regular basis. We have the Lord's Supper. That's why it's so important. It's that communion meal. It is, once again, a reaffirmation, not of our covenant promises to God, but to God's covenant promises to us. A reminder of the blessings that he has achieved for us. With the bread, we see his body given for us. With the wine, we see his blood, which washes away our sins. We eat and we drink and we feast. And we are thankful and we should rejoice in our heart. 
And we remember that there's a day coming when the feasting will never end. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb should be a, a word that resounds within our minds when we come to the table. Blessed are those who come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a reminder of the blessings, the infinite blessings that we have in Christ. And then, of course, we have those, those agapen, those, those love feasts, those communion feasts. When we meet as God's people, we have that table fellowship, and we are reminded, I am part of the family of God. I may be estranged from my family here on earth, but there is a family that I can never be estranged from, cut off from, a family that I will dwell with forever. We are reminded by that. They feasted for two weeks. We feast for one meal. Hopefully we don't eat as much as they do in the, in the same setting. But we should always go away from those meetings, and I hope you do, joyful and glad of heart. This is the best day of the week because we're reminded of what Christ has done for us. On the eighth day, we read, he sent the people, this is verse 66, he sent the people away, and they blessed the king and went to their tents, joyful and glad of heart, for all the good that the Lord had done for his servant David and for Israel, his people. We read in our folder here, this is the Sabbath meditation, I'd encourage you to turn to it. When they were dismissed, that is the people, they blessed the king, applauded him, admired him. And returned him the thanks of the congregation, and then went to their tents joyful and glad of heart, all easy and pleased. God's goodness was the matter of their joy, so it should be of ours at all times. They rejoiced in God's blessing both on the royal family and on all the kingdom. Thus should we go home rejoicing from holy ordinances and go on our way rejoicing. Do you come away from the, the worship of the Lord, from your time spent with God's people, rejoicing? Or do you say instead, and I know this is the case with some, I cannot rejoice because dot, dot, dot. I cannot rejoice because I do not have the right job. I'm sorry, I cannot rejoice because I do not have enough money. I cannot rejoice because I do not have the right spouse. I cannot rejoice because I do not have the right parents. If I had the right parents, I would rejoice all the time. I cannot rejoice because my cell phone is several years out of date. How can I rejoice in a situation as dire as that? I'm sorry. God's abiding presence, his salvation and his holiness, and the fact that he hears and answers the prayers of his people, and that his kingdom is spreading throughout the world, and that I've been invited to take part in that, helping to spread the kingdom of God, that's not enough. It's not enough. No. Friends, that should be more than enough. Abundantly more than enough. The real problem may be that you want too little in the way of blessing. Not too much. You're not looking for salvation. You're looking for a little pleasure here on earth. A thimble full of pleasure followed by a sea of wrath. What a stupid exchange. What, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. Here's the thing. If you pursue the kingdom of God, all the little things are added to you. If you pursue the little things, you miss the kingdom of God. That's not me making that up. Those are the words of Christ. I'm going to close with this. Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6. And then starting with verse 25. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? 
Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. I tell you, brothers and sisters, that's the truth. I found it in my own experience. And every Christian who has followed Christ consistently and sought those blessings that he offers through his covenant obligations through Christ, you will receive those things. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. God, our Father, we go come into your presence now. We have great need of those blessings that you offered. We know Solomon was right to ask for them. Help us to truly ask for them. We are so easily contented with, with silly little things for a time. And then we find that they cannot fill that hole that exists within all of us. A void that is infinite and can only be filled by an infinite God. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would, therefore, fill the hearts of all of your people. We pray, Lord, that you would do that great, that great changing work. Changing our wills, making us willing to believe in the day of your power. O oh Lord, may it be that our hearts would be inclined to you and conform to the image of our Savior.